that time again, you're listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. This is Line Upon Line, where we study God's Word line by line. And I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 9 poses a very interesting question. He asks, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? chapter, same verse, them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. Why? Next verse, for precept, that is instruction and righteousness. Precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So if you're serious about your walk with God and you want to understand the true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible. Tell a friend about this study. Tell your pastor about this study. Let's get into God's Word, line upon line. chapter 21. Last week we covered chapter 20, and we'll continue in chapter 21. We'll just open with a word of prayer and then get into today's study. Our Heavenly Father, we pause before our study. We want to acknowledge you, the one, the only true God. We want to acknowledge your word, and we just thank you so much, Father, for the prophets and the apostles and all the holy men that have come before us and have worked so hard to preserve this word so that we might have access to it upon whom the ends of the age have come. We pray, Father, that you will deepen our understanding. We also pray, Father, that you will uh, just enrich us with a hunger for your word. Help us to be among those that love the truth. And no matter what, we just want to know what is true and we want to be right with you. We pray for this blessing, Lord, and we ask for all this in the name, the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. So as I mentioned, uh, we are up to Acts chapter 21. Uh, Last week, uh, chapter 20, we saw where the Apostle Paul in verse 16, I'll just read it again, that Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend time in Asia. For he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. So there is a count, and in fact, the book of Acts opens with the brethren waiting in Jerusalem until the day of Pentecost, where Jesus Christ instructs them after his resurrection for 40 days. And then there are another 10 days that they need to count. And we come into Acts 2, 2, 
uh, with the with the words, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Uh, so these these the early church after Christ's death were observing the holy days, and they're outlined in Leviticus 23. And in order to observe Pentecost, you have to count. It's a Pentecost means count 50. And in order to observe Pentecost, you have to count 50 days from when? From the Sabbath that falls during the days of unleavened bread. And unleavened bread, to observe unleavened bread, you have to observe Passover. So clearly, the early church observed the Passover, not Easter. They observed Passover. And from Passover, they then observed the days of unleavened bread. And within the days of unleavened bread, when they identify the Sabbath, this is all outlined in Leviticus 23, that is the wave sheaf offering that the next day begins to count. And so they begin counting for the next day. They count seven Sabbaths or 50 days. Seven Sabbaths plus a day or 50 days. Pentecost. And so they were in the count. The whole book of Acts is about what happens to the church when the, the church observes these days, observes Pentecost, receives the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit now acts in these men. Primarily Peter and John, and then we see it acting in the Apostle Paul, uh, according to, to you know, Luke's emphasis, the, the purpose why he's writing this book. Now, we see him, uh, Paul now, all these years later, still the, the Apostle to the Gentiles, observing the day of Pentecost. And he's doing his best to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And then in verse 22 of Acts 20, which we covered last week, and this is on, and on the archive, uh, on, on Life 101, if you want to uh, get you know, previous studies, they're in the archive. But here we see, and now, behold, verse 22 of Acts 20, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. So, so the apostle was not sure what would happen to him in Jerusalem, but he's expecting confrontation. And then he goes on to say, I don't know what's going to happen to me there except, verse 23, that the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions uh, await me. So wherever he goes, the Holy Spirit is coming to him, people inspired by the Spirit, saying, you're going to be in trouble when you go to Jerusalem. So that's all he knows. But then he says in verse 24, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. So I don't care. It's not about me. I have, I have a mission. I have a job to complete. I'm going to do that. And, and I'm going to make sure that I finish my course with joy. That when I cross the finish line, there's going to be great joy. It's, it's, it's not what happens to us during this life that really matters. It's what happens to us after this life that matters. And his, eye, his, eye was, his eyes were on the prize. So I'm going to finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that you all, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. And he went on to warn them that they're, they're charged to oversee the flock, feed the flock, protect the flock. And he's saying, look, there's going to be uh, wolves that are going to penetrate the church. And even I already see of your own selves, you ministers that are in front of me, I even see among you, there are going to be those that are going to fall victim to the devil, not sparing the flock. But he says, look, I've warned you, and I'm free from the blood. When, when, when God calls you to account for this catastrophe, 
I'm free from the blood of all men, because I have given you the whole counsel of God. So with that as backdrop, we come into chapter 21, and beginning in verse 1, it reads, Luke writes, And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them, so they've now left this company uh, in Miletus, the Ephesian elders, and had launched, so they're now set sail, we came with a straight course unto Cus. So they, we're going to see here uh, Paul and Luke. So Luke is writing we because he's part of the party. Uh, but this party of believers with Paul, they're making significant, covering significant ground, making significant progress because they're, they're in the count to Pentecost and they're trying to get to Jerusalem in time to observe Pentecost there. In fact, we right now are in the count of Pentecost. We have seven more days. This is day 43 of the 50-day count to Pentecost. So Pentecost is exactly one week today. Uh, this Pentecost always falls on a Sunday, the first day of the week, because of how the count is set. And then sometimes in the uh, writings, in the scriptures, where they're gathered on the first day, it's actually Pentecost they're, they're keeping, or as we observed, um, it was not last week, it was the week before, we saw the first of the Sabbaths because they're in the count, seven Sabbaths. But the way the translators put it, they put on the first day of the week, making it sound like these, the, the, the early church has switched to uh, observing Sunday, when no such thing has happened. So here, uh, they're going to make a straight course onto Cus, and the day following onto Rhodes, and from there onto Patara. So you know, if you, if you actually Google the um, missionary journeys of Paul, you'll see the location of these cities and how they're all along the Mediterranean Sea, and how he's, he's cutting across the coastline, and then we're going to see them cut across uh, through Cyprus to get to Syria, because they're trying to get to Jerusalem as quickly and in a straight line as possible. So he says, And finding a ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, we went aboard and, sent, and set forth. Now, when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand, so on the south side, and again, they're trying to get, uh, they're trying to uh, position themselves to make land shore in Syria as close to Jerusalem as they can, and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unlade her burden. So it looks like this is a set course for this ship, it's maybe a cargo ship. And so they've joined this, uh, this uh, regular scheduled journey perhaps, and it unloads in Tyre. So that's where they're going to land. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days. So they, they, the ship lands in Tyre. They, they, find, they then find believers there, because, of course, the gospel went out uh, all over there. So finding believers there, they um, stay there seven days. So they're there for a week. Um, and then listen to what the disciples say. Who said to Paul, through the Spirit, that he should not go up to Jerusalem. Now, Paul has just told us in Acts 20 that he is bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And now we see here in verse 4 that the disciples in Tyre are telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And so there's a bit of a contradiction here. The way we need to understand this is the Spirit is in fact driving Paul to Jerusalem. The same way it drove Jesus Christ, our Lord, to Jerusalem. And, and in the same way that Jesus Christ suffered in Jerusalem, Paul is going to suffer in Jerusalem. But when it says that um, the disciples are, are warning Paul through the Spirit, this is the same thing that we saw in Acts 20. And we just read this in verse 22. He says, 
And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem. So the Spirit is driving into Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me, except this, verse 23, that the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me or await me. So, so this is exactly what is every city. Every city he goes to, it's the same thing. People who are inspired by the Spirit are able to tell him what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. So here in verse 4, when he finds these disciples in Tyre, and he spends seven days with them, and it says they said to Paul through the Spirit, then they just sort of jump to a conclusion that he should not go up to Jerusalem because the Spirit has revealed to them that he's going to suffer in Jerusalem. They're not taking it a step further and saying, therefore, you should not go to Jerusalem. They should have just given him the inspiration that they received that he's going to receive He's going to receive beatings or suffering. He could be put to death in Jerusalem. That doesn't mean that he's not to go there. And so Paul says he already knows this. Every city he goes to, the, the Spirit reveals to him that he, his sufferings await him in Jerusalem. Verse 5. And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way. And they all brought us on our way with wives and children. So what does this mean? So it says, they all brought us on our way with wives and children. Basically what that means is, they gave them provisions. They gave them money, they gave them food, they gave them whatever they needed and looked after the wives and children so that they could continue their journey. Till we were out of the city. And we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave, one of another, we took ship and they returned home again. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip, the evangelist, which was one of the seven and abode with him. It's interesting that Luke calls him Philip, the evangelist, when clearly, when we go back to Acts 6, we see that he was one of the seven. And in fact, let me just uh, quickly jump back there. Acts 6. When it says, In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians, that is the Greek Jews, against the Hebrews, the Hebrew Jews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And so they came up with this solution that they should pick out seven men that were full of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 5, the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip. And it goes on, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, who, set they, who they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. So Philip was one of the seven. He was a deacon. He was set aside to be a deacon. But Luke acknowledges here, even though he was deacon, he was an evangelist. So Stephen as well was an evangelist. So just because someone is a deacon doesn't mean they don't have the gift of evangelism. And so here uh, Luke acknowledges that they went into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and they stayed with him. And the same man had four daughters. So this same Philip had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And a lot of people want to read over this as well. That it is perfectly legitimate for women to prophesy. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, and then jumping to 14, the end of 12, uh, and the beginning of 14, Paul tells the Corinthian church to covet to prophesy. 
that the prophesying is not exclusive to men. Women can prophesy as well. But prophesying doesn't mean you have to be a, a, you know, a minister standing behind a, a podium uh, and preaching to the brethren. Or that, very clearly, that is a male role. If we read the scriptures honestly and clearly, that's a male role. But it doesn't mean that women cannot prophesy. And, and prophesying can be done one-on-one, -on -one, it can be in a small group, uh, it does not have to be in the formal service. But clearly, this man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, and, and, and Philip, again, from Acts 6, we know he was faithful. That, that when they went out and they chose seven men, they were told to find seven faithful men full of the Holy Spirit. And so that was Philip, and he had four daughters. Clearly, his influence was on his daughters, and uh, these virgins prophesied. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. So they were there for a while. And certainly there must have been a great bond with these, these, these believers. And then while they're there, this man comes down from Judea, a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, so he takes uh, Paul's, a piece of Paul's clothing and he binds himself. He binds his hands and he binds his feet with Paul's clothing. And he said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owns this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So this is again, this man, this prophet is uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And every city that Paul goes to, men who are inspired by the Holy Spirit are saying the same thing. But the Holy Spirit is not saying to Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. It's just saying, this is what's going to happen to you when you go to Jerusalem. And Paul acknowledged that. In chapter 20, we saw that. That he, he said, I don't know what's going to befall me in Jerusalem except this. That every city I go to, I'm, I'm warned, but I'm bound to go. And so this prophet comes now and he says the exact same thing. That he's going to suffer in Jerusalem. And when we heard these things, both we, that is Paul's party, Luke including himself, and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. So here he is um, with Philip. And, and they, he says in verse 18, they're in, they're in uh, Caesarea. They came to Caesarea. And they spent many days there um, with Philip. And then this prophet comes down from Judea to Caesarea. And so Luke is writing, when this prophet, Agabus, explains to Paul what's going to happen to him, if he goes to Jerusalem, then Luke and the rest of Paul's party and all of the brethren in Caesarea begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean you to weep and to break my heart? Paul said, Why are you doing this? Why are you crying and breaking my heart? Listen, for I am ready. Not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you you don't think I've thought this through? You don't think I understand what I'm what I'm a part of? Why are you trying to break my heart? I, I know I'm going to be bound, and if that if that's all there was, that's nothing, because I'm ready to die. Now, as Theophilus is reading this volume, 
which Luke has written to him. Again, this is an echo of volume one. Because in volume one, what Luke writes in chapter 13, verse 33, nevertheless, this is the Lord Jesus writing or speaking. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. So that the, the Lord Jesus is, is doing his best to get to Jerusalem in time for the Passover, because he is to be slain on the Passover as the Passover. And he's saying, I've got to get to Jerusalem for Passover. So I've got to walk today, I've got to walk tomorrow, and the day after tomorrow, because it, it just cannot be that I perish, or that a prophet perishes out of Jerusalem. And then he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which kills the prophets, and stone them that are sent unto you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen that does gather her brood under her wings, and you wouldn't have it. So here, here we have the Lord found and determined to get to Jerusalem for Passover, where he knows he would be killed, but the Spirit driving him to Jerusalem. And now we see Paul with the exact same mindset, where the Holy Spirit that animated Christ is now animating Paul and driving him to Jerusalem, and he's prepared to die there because he knows what Jerusalem is. Christ taught him what Jerusalem is. It's anathema to God. It's the, it's, and it's the antithesis to everything God stands for because it's been taken over by the devil and the devil's people. Chapter 21, verse 14. And when he would not be persuaded, Luke writes, we ceased. They cried, they begged, they pleaded. Everybody was against Paul. And Paul's like, no, you're breaking my heart, but I have to go. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, the will of the Lord be done. So it's in God's hands now. So everybody's warned him. We love Paul so much. The will of the Lord be done. And, and, and in fact, the will of the Lord will in fact mean that Paul is not slain in Jerusalem, that he'll actually be slain in Rome. But Paul didn't know this at the time. He believes he's following the steps of his Lord, and, and um, Theophilus is seeing completely the legitimacy of Paul's ministry. He's, he's, Paul's ministry is being completely validated by Luke when viewed through the lens of Jesus' ministry. So you read volume one first, you study Jesus' ministry, and now you come to volume two, and you see the ministry of Paul is patterned after the ministry of the Lord. Verse 16. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea, and brought with them one Mason of Cyprus, an old disciple, with whom we should lodge. And when we were come to Jerusalem, so they finally made it there, when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, so remember, we go back to Acts 8, there was this great persecution on the church, and the brethren had to flee, but the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, and then the brethren fled and took the gospel with them wherever they fled, but the church obviously rebuilt from the work of the apostles in Jerusalem. And now Paul is coming back these many years later, and he says, um, Luke writes that the brethren received them gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James. And all the elders were present. 
And when we had saluted them, he declared particularly in detail what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. So this is very interesting. So Paul's ministry uh, is, was to the Gentiles. God was very effective in using him to convert Gentiles and build churches in Gentile cities. And he comes back to Jerusalem and he shares with them all of this. And that is wonderful. They're thrilled. They glorify the Lord because of it. But they're also able to show, look, many thousands of Jews. People say, you know, um, the Jews killed Christ and the Jews rejected Christ. But that's not totally true. Because the early church was made up primarily of Jews. It was not till the uh, the um, dream that, that Peter had that the, this, this ministry was opened up to the Gentiles. And then, or, or this gospel was opened to the Gentiles, and then it's not until the Apostle Paul that the ministry to the Gentiles gets any real traction. Prior to that, the church was just flourishing among the Jews. It was actually considered another sect of Judaism. And now uh, James and the elders are able to show Paul, look how many thousands of Jews have believed. Now he says, and this is interesting as well, they are all zealous of the law. So they love the law. And people believe, because we've been deceived, that Christianity rejects the law of God. It does not. It does not. This is a deception. And, and the, the Greeks that infiltrated the church that Paul warned of in Acts 20, and they brought their Greek philosophy, they completely hijacked Christianity and made it something completely foreign to what the early church believed. In fact, if we could resurrect any of the apostles and show them the state of Christianity today, they would be flabbergasted. They would be stunned. They would not recognize it. Because it's not the Christianity of the Lord. And so we need to go come back to the scriptures and, and really understand what, what is Christianity? What is it really? And what is the foundation of it? And what is the role of Gentiles in Christianity? Because Gentiles are basically taking it over. And so he says, they are all zealous of the law. Now listen to verse 21. And they are informed of you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. So this is quite worrying now. So, so now you're, you've come back to Jerusalem, and all the Jews are hearing about this Rabbi Paul is that he's teaching Gentiles, or sorry, he's teaching the Jews that are among the Gentiles. So, so forget about the Gentiles for a moment. This is a Jewish matter. They're concerned that this Rabbi Paul is teaching Jews that live amongst the Gentiles that they can forsake Moses. So James says, was it, what is it there for? So how should we handle this? What's going to happen? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that you have come. So when they hear that Paul is in town, it's going to attract the attention of all these Jews that are worried that he is destroying Moses. So he says, when they hear that you're here, they're going to come together. 
Do therefore this that we say to you. So all the elders are telling him to do this. We have four men which have a vow on them. So what is this vow that they have on them? We have to go to Numbers 6 to understand the Nazarite vow. And in Numbers 6, verse 13, uh, Moses writes, And this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, so he makes a vow and he separates himself, when that vow is over, he shall be brought unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Verse 16, And the priest shall bring them before the Lord and shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. Verse 18, And the Nazarite shall shave the head of his separation at the door of the tabernacle. So while they're in the period of their vow and in the period of their separation, they are not to cut their hair. And so they're to let the locks of their hair grow. At the end, when, they, when their vow is complete, then the priest can sh then the Nazarite shall shave the head of his separation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall take the hair of the head of his separation and put it in the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings. So that's how the conclusion of this vow is to be handled. So James and the elders are saying to Paul, look, we've got four Christian Jews, Christian believers, they're Jews but they accept Messiah, that are under this vow, and they're coming to conclude their vow. And it looks like Paul himself may have also been in this vow, because he would have to have hair to shave in order to conclude this vow. So he says, them take and purify yourself with them. So, so Paul is getting to Jerusalem, he, he wants to conclude his, the days of his separation, and he's saying, well, look, wait and do it with the four men. And be at charges with them. So there's uh, offerings that they have to make. There's money that has to be spent. Uh, put your lock in with them. Be at charges with them. That they may shave their heads. And all may know that those things, whereof they were informed, concerning you, are nothing. Listen. Listen to what the scripture is. Listen to what James the elder and the other elders, Peter and John, all of them in Jerusalem, Jews who accept Christ, Christ's disciples and Christ's apostles, listen to what they're saying to Paul. That they have amongst themselves, Jews, that have undertaken a Nazarite vow and are going to conclude their vow, four of them, you, Paul, conclude your vow with them. So that all of the Jews that believe when, we, when they come together, they can see that you have not abandoned, as a Jew, you have not abandoned the customs of Moses. And you are not teaching the Jews that are living among the, the Gentiles to abandon Moses. So this, this is what we're telling you you need to do. They're, they're informed concerning you that these things are not true. But that you yourself also walk, how does he walk? Orderly. That you walk orderly. The Greek word is stakeo. To show them that you walk orderly and you keep the law. Let them see that you keep the law. We all keep the law. Don't Let's not have this thing that they think that you've abandoned the law. Then he, then he goes on to say, As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written, remember they came to the council at, at, in Jerusalem in Acts 15. And so they know this, and they would have taught the, the Jews this. That's touching the Gentiles which believe. So it's very clear here that the Gentiles are coming into the Hebrews. 
The Gentiles are being grafted into the Hebrews. This is not a Gentile religion. This has nothing to do with the Gentiles. And somehow the Gentiles, the, starting with the Greek philosophers, have hijacked the religion and have created this Greco-Roman tradition that has nothing to do with, do with the Hebraic root and has completely destroyed the meaning of Christianity. Worshipping on Sunday, observing Easter and Christmas and Valentine's Day and Halloween and, and just this concept of Christ that is completely alien to the scriptures. We've got to come back to the scriptures. And, and the New Testament does not make sense if you have rejected the Old Testament. The, the Bible that the early church had was the Old Testament. And the New Testament, is, you can think of the New Testament as a commentary on the Old Testament. And you have to bring the two together to understand the Word of God. But so many Christian churches are quote-unquote New Testament Christians. And they've rejected the Old Testament. You can't understand the Bible. If you reject the foundation he says look as touching the Gentiles which believe we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing except only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols so they don't have to do this Nazarite vow and all that the, the Jews find to continue in this there's not a rejection of this but but the, the, the Gentiles don't have to do this except that they keep themselves from idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. Now, we covered this when we were in Acts 15. Is this all the Gentiles have to do? So if I'm a Gentile and I come into this and I say, oh, I should not offer anything to idols. I shouldn't eat blood. I shouldn't eat anything that's strangled and, and, and dies from strangulation. And I should keep myself from sexual perversity. But that means it's okay for me to lie. Oh, I guess it's okay for me to murder. It's okay for me to covet. Does this make any sense? And then it's okay for me to break the Sabbath as well and maybe start keeping on Sunday instead of the Sabbath day? Of course that's not what they're saying. And when we covered Acts 15, let's just go back. In Acts 15, when they debated this back and forth in verse 19, they said, look, here's the conclusion. Therefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. In other words, no, they don't have to be circumcised and go through this very painful process, especially as an adult. Well, let's not trouble them. Let's not put them through this. But that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, from fornication, from things strangled, and from blood. Why those four things? And why only those four things? Because these things have to do with the law of the strangers that dwell among you. And then he, he knows it's not just these things. These are the highlights. These are the things that are most offensive and, and high risk. If we're going to have Gentiles dwelling with us, these are the high risk issues because of the cultures they're coming from. And then he goes on. You, you can't read verse 20 without reading verse 21 of Acts 15. In verse 20 he says, We write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. Don't stop there. Read the next verse. Why? Why, these, why just these things? For Moses of old time has in every city them that preach him, 
being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. I hope you didn't miss this. And again, in the archives, look at Acts 15. We'll go into this in more detail. But he's saying very clearly here, we only have to teach these high-risk these high items. We only have to write about this to all the churches. Because the rest of it, on the weekly Sabbath, when they go to services on the weekly Sabbath, Moses has in every city rabbis that preach him. So they'll get the rest of the story when they go to service on Sabbath. And that's where they'll get the details of the rest of, of how to be a Torah observant, Torah compliant. But these things are the high-risk items that, and, and why? And again, if you, when we started Acts 15, we covered this, but I'll just quickly highlight it here. When we look in the Torah, in Leviticus 17, verse 10, he says, Moses writes, And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers that dwell among you. So here is the Torah with respect to, to Gentiles that dwell among you. And whatsoever there be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, that eats any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eats blood, and will cut him off from among his people. I, I would say that the Jews would be very sensitive to this command about strangers that dwell among you. That, that he will, God will cut off those people that do this. And so if the Gentiles are now going to be integrated into us, we need to make sure they do not do this because they're coming from these customs where this is their natural thing. And then in Leviticus 18 and verse 24, sorry, verse 25, and Leviticus 18 is excellent to read from top to bottom to understand what it says fornication. It's translated fornication. It really should be translated sexual immorality, any sort of sexual perversion. And Leviticus 18 outlines them all, that all the Gentiles are involved in, and how Israel must not be involved in those things. But in verse 25 he says, And the land is defiled, it's sexually defiled, therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it. And the land itself vomits out her inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations. So all of this sexual immorality that Moses itemizes in Leviticus 18. He says, you're not to commit any of these things. Neither any of your own nation, nor any stranger that sojourns among you. For all these abominations have the men of the land done, which were before you, and the land is defiled, that the land spew not you out also when you defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. For whosoever shall commit any of these abominations, even the souls that commit them shall be cut off from among the people. And in Numbers 15 and verse 16, Moses writes, One law and one manner shall be for you and for the stranger that sojourns with you. So this is the Torah. This is, this is how they came to this judgment, that they looked in the Torah specifically about what Moses wrote about the strangers that dwell among you. And they said, look, Urgently, urgently, if these Gentiles are going to be dwelling among us, urgently, urgently, let's write to them and say, look, Moses was very explicit. Avoid these things. And then the rest, when you're in the weekly Sabbath, Moses has, for a long time now, rabbis in every city 
that every Sabbath they're teaching. And the Gentiles can pick up the, the, the rest there. But we have to make sure that we guard against the, the influence of the Gentiles that Moses highlighted as they dwell among us. So um, James is now in Acts 21 saying to Paul, we know that what you're accused of isn't true. And we know you're Torah compliant. And we know what we wrote to the Gentiles in Acts 15. And so look, do this thing so that everybody can see, no, it's all good. There are certain things that we don't have to burden the Gentiles with. There are certain things that they absolutely cannot violate. The rest they can learn at the weekly Sabbath service. And you haven't changed. So let's make this clear to everybody. So what does Paul do? Verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day purifying himself with them, so he's concluding his vow with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification. So he, Paul is very much a Jew. And he, the, he, the, the people have advised him, do this publicly with the other four that are also under the same vow, so that everyone can see you haven't changed. Until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, so they're in Jerusalem, but they come from Asia, and so they were familiar with him, and probably they're the ones who are coming in uh, from Asia into Jerusalem with this report of what Paul is doing. So the Jews that are in Jerusalem, which came from Asia, Asia being what we call Turkey today, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. So these are not necessarily Christian Jews now, but they are Jews, and they were in Asia, and they come to Jerusalem, and they see Paul, and now they stir up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! Help! Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place, this place being Jerusalem. It reminds me of uh, Jeremiah when he preached against Jerusalem and the people panicked. And they threw him in prison. Same thing. This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place and further brought Greeks also into the temple. We saw it with our own eyes. And has polluted this holy place. And then Luke writes in parentheses, For they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So we don't know what the story is here, but there's some sort of an Ephesian man in this city that's in the temple. And they just assumed that Paul brought him into the temple. And clearly from what Luke is writing here, Paul did not bring him to the temple, but they just, it just fits their narrative that Paul is out to destroy Judaism. Now, after many years, uh, sorry, I'm just, um, yes, yeah, so I'm just jumping ahead to Acts 24 because of this accusation from the Jews which are in Asia. Well, we'll get to Acts 24 in a couple of weeks, but just jump ahead quickly in verse 17. Paul writes when he's defending himself, or he's, Paul says when he's defending himself, Now after many years I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, 
whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple. So that's exactly where we are now in Acts 21. These Jews from Asia found him purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult. So they found me in the temple. I wasn't causing any kind of a ruckus. I wasn't causing any kind of a stir. There was no chaos, no rioting. I wasn't with any kind of a crowd. These, these, these are the ones that found me. Who ought to have been here before you, I believe he's in front of Festus now, and object if they had anything against me. So, so Paul says that they're basically they're false accusers. And when they find him, they find him in the temple, and he's by himself, he's with the four men, and there's no crowd, and there's no chaos. So in any case, they uh, are accusing him. They cry out in verse 28, saying, Men of Israel, this is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and has polluted this holy place. Verse 30. And all the city was moved. So they really just stirred up the people. All the city was moved, and the people ran together. So you know what, what crowds are like, and we see this today. They're just unthinking. They're just so easily triggered, and, and they don't think things through, and it's just a sort of a crowd mob mentality. It's very dangerous, but that's what's happened here. And the people ran together, and they took Paul. And so people are included, jumping into this. They don't even know what's going on. But they took Paul and drew him out of the temple. And forthwith, the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, so they were making sure he doesn't get back in the temple, now they're going to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. So they can't have this. So in Rome, everything is about law and order. And to hear now that Jerusalem is in uproar, this chief captain is going to have to give an account. What, what, this is under your watch. What's going on? So he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. So we see exactly what the Holy Spirit had warned Paul of, that he would suffer in Jerusalem. This is exactly what came to pass. And fortunately, this chief captain moved very, very quickly with his soldiers and they didn't kill Paul, but they would have beaten him to death. So they stopped beating Paul. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. So again, we see the prophecy from Argobus that he would be bound in Jerusalem, and now he is bound. So they want to know what he had done. Notice verse 34. And some cried one thing, and some another, among the multitudes. So the multitudes, they don't know what they're doing. And they don't know why they're doing it. They think it's this reason, they think it's that reason. It's just confusion. It's not, it's not clearly one thing. Some cried one thing, and some another, among the multitude. And when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. So we're going to see again when we get to Acts 24. Paul is saying, when they found me, they found me in the temple, purifying my, having purified myself, and there was no tumult. So if there was a tumult, it didn't come from me. So the man is trying to understand that. What is the reason for the tumult, for this, this commotion? And he says, um, when he couldn't 
find reason with certainty, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. And when he came upon the stairs, so it was that he was carried by the soldiers for the violence of the people. So, again, so he came upon the stairs, it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. It sounds like Paul really couldn't, he wasn't in good shape, so the soldiers had to carry him. For the multitude uh, of the people followed after, crying, away with him. So they're still trying to get after him. Uh, so it looks like the soldiers also have to protect Paul from the crowd. And what are they crying? Away with him! Away with him! Again, if you're Theophilus, and you're reading this, Volume 2, after reading Volume 1, your mind goes right back to Luke 23. Verse 14, Luke uh, uh, writes, They said unto them, You have brought this man unto me, uh, this is uh, Pilate saying to them, as one that perverts the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof you accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity he must release unto them one at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man! Away with him! Away with him! And release unto us Barabbas. So it's the exact same thing. All over again, the pattern laid down by Christ of getting to Jerusalem, and then the people just wanting to destroy him in Jerusalem. Paul's ministry follows the exact same pattern. And as Paul was to be led into the castle, verse 37, he said unto the chief captain, uh, May I speak unto you? Who said, Can you speak Greek? So this just caught the, the captain off guard. So I guess the, they're all speaking Hebrew. And then when Paul addresses the man in Greek, he's like, Wow, can you speak Greek? Aren't you that Egyptian which before these days made an uproar and led, led, was led out into the wilderness for, and led out into the wilderness 4,000 men that were murderers. So it seems like there was some other Jew that this captain heard about who was from Egypt, so a Jew from Egypt that came into Jerusalem and, and led some kind of an, uh, an upheaval or a riot or a revolution potentially uh, with 4,000 men that were, mur were murderers. So that's who this man thought he was, and if he was this man, this Egyptian, he wouldn't have expected him to speak Greek, and yet Paul speaks Greek. And, and so there's all this confusion about who Paul is and what he did. But Paul said, I'm a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. This is, not, this is not a little city, this is not an insignificant city. And I'm a citizen, I'm a Roman citizen of that city. And I'm begging you, allow me to speak unto the people. And when he had given him license, so, so he's like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll let you speak to the people. So when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spoke unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying, and we'll have to wait until next week to, uh, to listen to 
what Paul actually said to them, but you see Paul's education, his citizenship, his flexibility with language. Uh, he was just the perfect instrument for God to use. And really, when you combine all of that with the Holy Spirit, which gave him courage and boldness, that everybody was saying, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. He didn't care. He was bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem and face whatever it is he had to face, but he's going to be preaching this gospel no matter what. And now he sees this whole crowd in front of him, all these Jews in front of him. And he's like, wow, this is a wonderful opportunity for me to preach Christ. And we'll find out next week the, the nuances and the significance of what he preached. I'll be right back.
Is there anything else there? Yes, I do. Okay, wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us again this Just week. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Yeah, doing really well. Thank you. Weather's、uh, still cool here. I'm waiting for it to warm up. Oh, <laughs> it's getting warm in Toronto. Oh, you know,、yeah. people still wearing their jackets and sweaters. Yes, it's unusual for June, but in any case, we know we know spring is coming because we know Pentecost is coming. We're we're seven days away from Pentecost. Yes. <laughs> Very good. So, how did you like to study this week? Any, any questions? Oh my, oh my, brother Adrian, it is so straightforward. You know, sometimes what I am、um, observing is that what is happening to to the Christian churches is like our conscience is so clear. We are blind. It's true, and it's easy to be blinded. It is easy if we have a concept already in our head, then it blinds us to everything else. Yeah. But if it's written in the new, it's in the old, and vice versa. Exactly right. Exactly right. right. Because the new is a continuation of the old. Exactly. A completion, more or less. The new fulfills. The, the new fulfills. Exactly. There's a lot of these、yes. open ends in the Old Testament, and they're fulfilled in the New Testament. And this is an eye opener for me because I'm always accused of going back under the law, and my people are telling me one thing, but in my heart, the Spirit of God is talking to me, and everything that I study makes sense. Why can't it make sense to them, and I don't understand it? It is true that the Holy Spirit teaches us according to our ability to learn and our desire to learn the things of God. Exactly.、Um, right. is, is it because they don't have a desire to learn, or they're very complacent in their beliefs, or what is it?、Uh, it's a very good question.、Understand. It's a very good question. I don't have、uh, the answer except to say that God wants people who hunger and thirst for His righteousness. And my observation, Sister Avenel, is that people who love the truth, they're the ones that go after it, and they they hate the thought that they've been deceived.、Yeah. Is how can I how can I believe this all my life? And they're they're challenged, and they search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Whereas people who you know they want to be a good person, they want to go to church on Sunday, they really don't care about the truth. And when they're challenged, and they realize something they have believed all their life might be wrong, they just sweep it under the rug. And I think that's the difference.、Um, God is so faithful and God is so real. And I hope a lot of people, as Sam told me, a lot of people who listen to the lessons, they just don't call. Because I don't know if they're afraid to call or <laughs> difficult for them to call.、Um, they have something saying in the church: day of obligation. Okay, they say that. Sunday is a day of obligation, and Easter is a day of obligation. Now they call it days of obligation. And、um, what do you have to say about that, Mr. Adrian? Yeah, to me, Sister Abigail, I just want people to open the Bible. So if you want to talk to me about the day of obligation, give me chapter and verse. Open the Bible, show me what you're, so I can see what is it the Word of God actually says.、Uh, that, that's what I'm interested in. Yes. Okay. Well, I didn't know which chapter to go to. Um, but all I'm saying, they, they, they say that that、um, Sunday which they used to do is to keep as the Sabbath, which is a day of obligation, and that、um, Easter 
churches and other Protestant churches. And um, I have learned that God gave Ten Commandments. And He's asking us to keep these commandments. It's in the new and it's in the old. And some people say, oh, they are moral laws that you wish you, wish you must follow. Yes. Why do you keep, um, my question is, why do you keep Easter and Christmas and, and Father's Day and Mother's Day and Valentine's Day and the people that believe and know the truth, when they keep the days that appointed times of God, then we are criticized for it. Yeah, very strange, isn't that? But again, God, God wants people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. So it's, to me, it's all about truth. And do do we actually care about truth? Yes, yes. Um, for the new, for for the next week, um, um, on Pentecost, you will not be on on that day, right? That's right. That's right. Right. Because you said next week we will do things like that. Well, well, I usually, I will do a recording. Okay. I'll, I'll do a recording if I'm not live. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Um, um, this is, it's, it's just beyond my comprehension. I do not understand why the people, the believers in God's um, commandments, teachers of God's commandments, try to do the right thing and be constantly bombarded we are going back on the law. You mean my very own. You know, I am um, reminded that you are just going back on the law. Yeah. Again, you know, um, in, in Luke 8 and verse 10, uh, Christ says to his disciples, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. So Christ made it very clear that only the people whom he calls as his disciples or, or God calls to him as disciples, they're the ones that will know the mysteries. Everyone else is just parables. Yeah. So we, we have to pray to God and ask oh, did you God. Say Luke, 10? Luke 8, did you verse, say Luke 10? Luke 8, verse 10. That's right. I have to keep this thing. That's right. I cannot be doing this. Go 